0: Welcome to Hence the Future podcast. I'm Matamor Cronin. And I'm Justin Clark. And today we are discussing the future of politics. With us today is special guest Brett Ewer. Brett hey, is a, Hey. <laughs> Brett is a government relations specialist and public affairs strategist based in Washington, D.C. He's also a good friend of mine. We studied classics together during our college year in Athens, Greece. Brett, it's great to have you on the podcast. I'm, just gl- I'm glad to be here. Any Uh, chance I can get to teleport out of D.C., you know? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure it's pretty hectic there right now, Um, especially because so the day that this episode airs, which is two days from today, or I guess three days, is the midterm elections. So it's a really relevant topic for us right now. And it just seems to me, I don't know if it's just me, you can tell me, but it seems like politics is getting more and more interwoven into daily life and that it's becoming more and more divisive so i think it's it there's hardly any other topics that could be more and more important for us to address
1: now yeah totally agreed it's crazy too that we have <clears throat> so much so much of the country is moving to the extremes right and eventually this seems like from my perspective it will just rip the entire country apart
2: yeah, I think it's a symptom of there being, one, sort of a framework of institutional breakdown. Like, our traditional norms just don't – if anyone in D.C. tells you that, like, this is how things are done and this is how they will be done forever, they're full of shit. <laughs> I don't know if I'm allowed yeah. to say shit on the podcast, but – You're allowed. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not. You okay. can say anything oh. you, you want. You are allowed. Oh, okay, great. Well, feel free to bleep me out whenever it's <laughs> appropriate. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's, you know, institutional breakdown coupled with uh, coupled with the fast pace of social media and traditional media nowadays. So you get people catering to the extremes because they need views. And then that just feeds on each other. I mean, right. they it's, feed on each other until you have this sort of maelstrom that no one can keep up with. Exactly.
0: You know? I mean, I've heard it referred to as the outrage feed. It's like you go on Facebook or Twitter or wherever and the algorithm is optimizing for clicks so they can get ad dollars, which means that they're optimizing for outrage because that's what tends to get the most clicks. Even if people say that's not what they want, that's what they're drawn to when it's in front of them as they're scrolling through. So obviously there's lots of factors with the craziness that we're seeing now. I think the four major levers that I want to just focus on as sort of a theme of this episode is the power of the media, power of persuasion, the power of the vote, and the power of money. So, And not even just for U.S. democracy, but for any democracy, those seem to be, to me, the four main levers. So I want to start and get your guys' thoughts on the power of the media. So early on, you know, in the days of Julius Caesar... All we had was basically the print media and in-person speeches, which is why probably he had to be a tall man with a big voice. And that was a certain <laughs> yeah. kind of politics. Then we had radio, which started with Calvin Coolidge, but ultimately FDR was really the guy that sort of you know did that the best. And that was called the voice of God, because it did kind of feel like, you know, you're sitting in your room huddled up, wondering how the world war is going and you hear this booming voice of God inspiring you to take action and do everything you can. And it's pretty awesome. And then we had TV television, right? So JFK, Nixon, that was the first big televised debate. And at that point, it really became more important how you looked, how confident you appeared, how sort of slick you were. Yeah. Having nice (laughs) hair, all of that. But now we've gone beyond TV and we're in this social media space where there's lots of hyper targeting. So you can just target people in swing states who voted a certain way in the last election or who might vote a certain way because they just bought a Chevy or whatever, (laughs) whatever types of data you want to employ. Uh, Just the level of granularity is so much deeper. And, you know, we already touched on the outrage culture, but I'm curious that given all of these trends, where do you guys see the future of politics as it's related to the media?
2: Uh, You know, I think it's gonna be more and more likely, as we continue to be more polarized, I think it's more and more likely for individual political factions or camps to uh, actually just have their own media outlets. so we've we've assaulted the objectivity of the media, whether that exists or not. I mean, I, I generally tend to believe that it does. Um, you know, uh, obviously each outlet has its own you know bent, but uh, but I think we're going to see more of an outright shift to, like, individual politicians with followings, or individual, or not individual, but but uh, uh, factions having their own dedicated media outlets outright. Yeah. So, you know, we could say that like sure democracy now and the young turks are pretty much the voice of the insurgent progressive you know wing of the democratic party but they aren't they aren't affiliated with the party in any sense i mean they're they're independent organizations mm-hmm. i think we're going to just see start seeing an outright merging of communication shops with media
0: you know yeah that's that's really yeah. interesting because it does seem like it used to be that there were different news networks, the main three or four cable news networks, but they all reported the same news. It's just that yeah. some outlets had more charismatic anchors, but it was all pretty much the same set of facts. Now what we're seeing are different sets of facts completely based on what news outlet you're, you're looking at. And it's, I wonder if it's, you know, people say now it's, it's hard to even reach the other side because people tend to only follow who share their political beliefs. So it is getting more and more extreme,
2: and there's less and less common ground. And it's not even just reporting different facts. I mean, that definitely does happen. But it's having a different focus. So there's so much news out there today, because of technology or just because of ease of communication, that you can choose to focus on a scandal and still cover it correctly, but you're still committing the sin of omission. Hmm. So like, I can be, I could be covering, uh, I don't know. I could be covering a scandal that's happening at the CFPB. I don't think there is one to be clear, but, uh, but (laughs) I think they're doing a bang up job. Um, but you know, you could cover a scandal like a very minor scandal there at the expense of covering something more important, like, you know, rampant food insecurity among kids or healthcare or healthcare. it, It does seem like what politicians
0: choose to talk about causes what the country cares about. I mean, no one was really talking about immigration reform before the 2016 election, and now that is the number one biggest issue in the midterm election that we're seeing right now. So it is interesting. It's sort of like a chicken or the egg, like what do people care about Mm -hmm. versus what do politicians in the media say they care about, which causes what everyone talks about.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it's just like a, it's just a feedback loop sometimes. Like all it takes is one person to drop. Well, and we've seen that with President Trump. All he has to do is say something which, even if it, he could say something correct. He could say something that's factually incorrect. It doesn't matter. It's still going to be reported by the media. And then those fringe, more fringe media groups are going to focus on whatever narrative they want to push. And they're pushing it to a very cultivated and curated Audience and that audience is going to believe whatever it wants and then they're going to start calling their reps talking about it And you know, it's it's a massive game of telephone With weird topics being discussed
1: Right, so do you guys think that this is better than what it was in the past? You know in the Julius Caesar days in terms of the media and the spread of information because part of me thinks back in those days in the early days it could have been way worse than it is now because basically it was a big game of telephone like you were just saying Brett Mm. and uh, with the word of mouth spread of all these different ideas do you think everything got blown out of proportion back then because there's nothing to really correct them and now we kind of have a better uh, even though it seems crazy right now maybe it's just what we know and maybe it was way worse in the past I was just curious what you guys thought on that.
0: Yeah, I mean, I definitely think we have more access to information now. If you want to find the real facts, it's a lot <laughs> easier to do it now than in, you know, to try to figure out what's the actual situation in Gaul in the you know, Caesar's Gallic Wars. It's pretty tough for you to know that unless you're actually there with him and the legions fighting it out. Yeah. But one thing I would say is that As far as the population of Rome, I think they had a lot more overlap with what their general ideas are, because their Mm -hmm. only way of checking facts is to go into the Agora, talk with their fellow Romans, figure out what's going on. But now it's like you have people walking around on the sidewalk. One person is in a completely different reality than the next. You know, in one person's mindset, there is a Nazi in the White House. And they need to do everything in their power to bring back justice and fairness. And, you know, that might be that. I think that's too extreme on the left, personally. And then you have people on the right who think that this is literally the savior sent by God. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, you know, you have everything in between. But there are so many different versions of reality inhabiting the minds of Americans today that mm-hmm. I don't think we had that le- that going on in, in Roman times or even you know 40 mm-hmm. years ago 30 years ago
2: yeah and i think it's the the amount i think the amount of misinformation's probably increased but even more importantly is the ability to tailor uh, a narrative and target it so it's really right. getting we've gotten really good at getting the most like mundane topics like the export import bank like that's that's <laughs> such weird bonkish policy <laughs> that you then get people in like middle America or or the coasts or whatever, getting all up in arms about it. Um, I guess it's a good thing that they're getting civically engaged, but like our ability now to inflame passions is so much more. Um, Mm -hmm. Passions based off of that misinformation, especially.
0: Yeah, totally.
2: And And it
1: doesn't help. Oh, go ahead. Oh no, go ahead. You can say. I was going to say it doesn't help that the media giants like Facebook kind of just they just create these echo chambers where people just spread their own misinformation and their own um, versions of reality without really consulting any sort of outside views.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, I I agree with that. But I also
1: think you got to
0: cut them a little bit of slack because they have a really difficult challenge on their hands, which is that on the one hand, they have to make sure that they're not suppressing free speech. and and that's that's a big worry especially on the right a lot of people are worried about that and there is some leftist bias you can't deny that just from the simple fact that techies and journalists tend to be more left-leaning people but on the other hand you also don't want to let misinformation run rampant so that we find ourselves in a world war that never should have been a world war because the facts weren't even lined up in that way yeah
2: wait wasn't wasn't like World War One, wasn't there th- something called like the Zimmerman telegram or wasn't there some misinformation going on? I feel I like think I there something. was. Yeah.
1: I, I heard this in one of Dan Carlin's hardcore history podcasts, but it's been so long. I, I know yeah. kind of what you're talking about.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think it was, you know, Franz Ferdinand got, ass- got assassinated, but then there was some miscommunication. Yeah. I forget exactly. Um, yeah. But, but anyways, one trend that I think is going to be really relevant in the next 10 years, let's say, with exactly what we're talking about, which is figuring out what's fact, what's not. So these platforms can uh, you know, ban the accounts that are just spreading misinformation and allow the accounts that are just spreading their own opinion. And that mm. is deep fakes. So right now, the only way to say, oh, no, Trump actually did say that, even though he denied saying it, He did say it. The only way to do that now is to actually show the video clip. And I see that on the news all the time. You know, you see it on The Daily Show or Bill Maher or wherever, whatever you watch, you'll see the actual clips that prove that what he said is actually what he said and it could be on Mm -hmm. either side of the aisle. But once video deep fakes can make any person say whatever he or she likes, that's going to change the game, and i don't know how do we prove whether someone said something or not once you can create a video of whatever you want so long as you have enough uh, data to train the system.
1: There are some methods to to detect that though so when when these people are training machine learning algorithms to create videos of people, they need a lot of video footage of you know previous um interactions that these people have had. So we'll mm. take Trump, for example. They need to train it with a whole bunch of Trump videos. But one of the things that is easy to kind of see if something is a deep fake, typically the deep fakes don't blink or do these these subtle movements because the mm. blinking isn't in the uh, training data set. So there's like these little things that you can kind of look at. But couldn't, so you, they're not,
0: couldn't you just like pay someone some money to put some after effects after you have oh, yeah.
1: the Oh yeah. It's not it's still a huge problem, but there are it's not um, completely out it's of not this unsolvable. world. Yeah, yeah. Like we'll be able to solve it probably, but it's gonna be hard and people will need to know what to look for it. And if they're not educated about deep fakes, then anyone can be fooled by
2: it. Is there a way maybe, at least for media purposes, like is there a way that you could at the risk of sounding like a Silicon Valley douche, like is there a way <laughs> to use like the blockchain to like verify actual videos yeah, and, that's, like, that's a good idea. and like geotagging,
0: yeah. and, like you know? Verify or, or maybe the there's like an official vault of videos that are real that are kept, and there maybe they're on like VHS or, so, or something. Like... <laughs> yeah,
1: like if yeah. there's some sort of yeah. unique <laughs> tag identified with you know the the camera that actually took the video, you could have that as like metadata. I think there's probably ways that we could solve that and you know blockchain might be the way that people are going to go about that because it's a very good way to make sure things are non falsifiable. Yeah. So
0: the the problem that I see in this is that right now there are things that are scientifically proven that people still have opinions against them. So I don't know <laughs> if like imagine you have some fake video that goes viral that's like I don't know, like Obama saying he hates all white people or something that's like so clearly false. But if it's made to look so realistic that it blows up, everyone's talking about it. And then the scientists, the experts, they come out and they debunk it. I bet some portion of the population are going to say,
2: no, it is real. Look, it's right there. People are people will always try to confirm their bias. I mean, you see that with like climate change uh mm. deniers who will very frequently just say like yeah this is by a cabal of scientists that are trying to push an agenda and you know yeah. I, I am for critiquing the backgrounds and methodologies and studies and all yeah. of that, but like if ninety nine percent of scientists are saying you know, the, the evidence is just yeah, overwhelming right. by this well that's um, I, I love this
0: one tweet. I might have mentioned it before, but this one tweet I saw someone was like Oh, you think that that climate science is a hoax? Who do you think's behind it? Big everyone? (laughs) It's like, 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 yeah. yeah, it's relevant for all of us. But the other thing that I think is interesting is this idea of belief stacking, which is that it's amazing that just by knowing one belief of someone, you can, with a high degree of probability, predict all of their other beliefs. So if you know how someone feels about guns, you can predict how they're going to feel about climate. You can predict how they're going to feel about religion. You can predict how they feel about immigration. And it's, it's very interesting to me because... Uh, On uh, first glance, it wouldn't seem like any of these ideas are related or that any of them should be related. And I think it speaks to the kernel of tribalism that's underlying it, because if your tribe happened to have a slightly different stack, I bet that 99 percent of people in that tribe would just change their belief to follow that. And it's not about the actual policies and the individual beliefs themselves. It's about
2: the tribe. Yeah, I think just we tend to overestimate and maybe this is a little lofty, but like as people, we tend to overestimate our critical thinking abilities and oh, yeah. uh, how much we're susceptible. I mean, we're social animals. Like we rely on social cues and things to make mental shortcuts so that we aren't spending, you know, three hours a day, like looking at the inside of a flower. Um, right. like we, you know, we, <laughs> we rely on hallucinogens. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, <right? laughs> um, which I'm, you know, not necessarily saying you should, but, uh, <laughs> it might
0: be better if everyone in the U S just like had a little dose, like right before the election. <laughs>
2: <laughs> All right. Everyone just calm down. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, but it's like people need to make those shortcuts. And yeah, I think you're right. Is that, you know, people will more often than not just go along with whoever has already, whoever's on the in group has already validated their pre existing opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, which is which is really useful, at least in the world of influence, because once you find that person that does kind of uh, you know have sway over a large number of people within an in group that you're trying to influence, um, once you influence that one person, then then you're all good. You've pulled that lever, and the rest of the group should follow. Right. So, how do you guys see
0: this evolving? Where So on the one hand, we have the media platforms themselves and the algorithms that determine what people see. On the other hand, we have these in-groups that have a lot of power. And and Brett, you were were projecting that there might be some vertical alignment of these in-groups with their own media platforms. I'm curious what you guys think about how, if algorithms will one day hold all the power. And what got me thinking about this is, are you familiar with Scott Adams? He's a Republican. <laughs> uh, I actually think he's really smart. You know, he he's very is he actually a Republican Well, he considers himself an independent but most of his policies align with okay. with uh, the Republicans I think he's yeah. super insightful as far as persuasion, but one thing mm-hmm. he talked about is he said Trump will be the last human president and What he means by that is that Trump is the last guy that just because of how insane his personality and his persuasion and everything is, that he's actually able to drive what's going on. Whereas future presidents, it'll be more about the algorithms that determine what people care about, and presidents will more just be reactive to whatever the main issues are of the day based on those algorithms in the media and what's going on. So do you guys agree with this, that Trump might be the last sort of proactive human president versus a reactive to the algorithm president? And do you think that one day the algorithms may hold almost all the power?
1: Well so I think that there's probably going to be a human president in the future but part of this is probably going to well I think we'll first start with a non-human president like what you were just describing and then maybe eventually there's going to be some huge backlash. And once this backlash occurs and, you know, we need, we need to have a more human-centric president, maybe there's another uproar similar to the one that happened in 2016.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's likely. I think ultimately if you play it out far enough, there will be uh, algorithmic control over what we see and hopefully it'll be beneficial. I mean, it doesn't, algorithmic doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be bad, right? So you can imagine an algorithm that effectively filters out everything that's fake, everything that's misinformation, everything that's hateful just for the sake of being hateful. And you can Mm -hmm. make sure everything that is helpful that are real opinions, that are real news, real facts, all of that can be filtered into the system. And then you can, you know, whatever are the most important issues can simply rise to the top and Mm -hmm. anything that's unimportant or not real can simply be left out. So I think whether the algorithm is as good as I just stated or whether it has some bias one way or the other, it does seem Mm -hmm. like that's fairly inevitable.
1: Yeah, and I could I could see a lot of situations where decisions are definitely, or a lot of uh, scenarios where decisions are aided by these algorithms. So maybe, um, the, maybe these some sort of AI and machine learning um, algorithm can determine what the next priority should be to drive some objective, whether that's a better economy or a better healthcare system, you know, maybe, maybe algorithms kind of assist in the decision making. Um, not even, not even necessarily just the spread of, uh, information and what the public cares about, but the actual governance.
0: Yeah, no, totally. I mean, this is actually goes into my sort of best case scenario. So, Mm -hmm. you know, we, maybe we can hold it, but just to give a little teaser, I do think that if we use the best of both worlds, the best of the human world as far as our decision making and the best of the algorithmic world to bring all of the information that's relevant, we can make the best informed decisions and make them in a timely fashion. So not have to go through the slog of the legislative process, but actually be able to um, you know, make, make changes in real time. Mm -hmm. I think that covers the power (laughs) of the media. Now I want to talk about the power of persuasion next, because Mm -hmm. this seems to have a very big impact on people, um, you know, especially since 2016. So the way that I see it, the most effective means of persuasion seem to be fear, identity politics, and the use of visuals. Mm-hmm. And this is not just true in modernity, it goes, it's true all the way back, I mean, you know, we started this episode talking about the Romans, but part of why Caesar's Gallic Wars were so popular among the Romans is that he t- talked about the fear of, if we do not go out and conquer these Celtic people, then they will come and they will sack Rome as they already have done before. And that yeah. made him immensely po- uh, immensely um, popular. And then, of course, so that's the fear aspect. The identity politics was the fact that they were all Romans. They were all civilized people. They were not barbarians. They were clean-shaven Romans who liked wine, not beer, who wore togas, not pants. Right, right.
2: All <laughs> <And>, You know?
0: <laughs> yeah, and then, the, I mean, I guess the use of visuals, I can't really speak to that because I'm just not sure if they did use visuals or not, at least visual language. But, you know, one thing that I saw was so effective with Trump is talking about the wall. And, you know, anyone who thinks about this for two seconds is like, well, that's a crazy idea because most people fly into the country through planes. And Mm. rather than building a physical structure, why not just have a system of cameras or sensors or something more high tech that would actually be more effective than building you know putting bricks on top of bricks or whatever it is but the visual of a wall between you and the people you're afraid of that are the they and you are the we that is uh, is really powerful
2: most definitely and I think it's it's you know beyond its actual like real utility I mean the wall like a, a wall over that stretch of land is just useless I think it's best to think about it more as a monument or as a statement of values, and hmm. that's in this instance, it's in fact a despicable value. It's a giant middle finger to the rest of the Western <laughs> Hemisphere, excepting Canada, um, saying we don't want you here. It also is convenient that most of the people that would be trying to come in are are brown, and contrasting that with <laughs> with a, a person that is stoked white nationalism, it seems pretty clear that it's it's not. Actually, about border security. It's about a missing yeah. well, into his base saying, you know, I'm on your side, wink, wink. Um, right. And sometimes well, wink, wink is, you know, outright.
0: <laughs> that, that is interesting because I have heard about the racialization of politics, which for whatever reason, and studies show that race is a more powerful lever to pull than gender. Or then, I mean, I think socioeconomic status, like you know, Bernie Sandy's about the billionaires and the millionaires, <laughs> like that's pretty powerful too. I think that was the second most powerful. But the lever of race and the us versus them, that is, it just gets at the core of of the monkey brain,
2: you know, yeah. of the of you know, yeah, the lizard gets, brain even. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's it's it's. I think it's actually more of the rule than it is the exception in American politics, just because ever since we've had, you know, an American body politic, ever since we've had European uh, colonists or settlers in North America or in, in the Western hemisphere, there's always been that, that element of, of racial division and tension. And only until recently, like maybe the 50s or 60s, were was, was there the real introduction of like dog whistles so like yeah. oftentimes welfare reform was really just it was really just coded language for we don't want our money which is predominantly coming from white people to be spent on essential services for other citizens who are who are black
0: right.
2: um, who are you know not white um so i think what's happening now is that that mask, those dog whistles are really just being removed, and we're kind of regressing to an earlier stage in politics where th- there were outright, um, where there was outright incitement of racial hatred for a political end. Yeah, um, you know, Well, I wonder, I wonder draft. how effective this will continue to be.
0: I mean, you know, obviously, it's a lot less sexy to talk about centrism to be like, well, let's just. <laughs> Look at a happy medium. You know that doesn't really rev people up. It doesn't really like get people riled out there with signs, shouting Wait, things. Hold
2: on, though. I think you have an idea, though, is that there's probably a select demographic that really gets turned on by centrism. So all you got to do <laughs> is you really just gotta. I don't know. Like, we'll, we'll come up with some Playboy centrist puns later. Uh, <laughs> but I think you, yeah. I think you got the idea here. <laughs> yeah, totally. Well, well, where I was going
0: with that is that. It is undeniable that the demographics of America are changing. So a couple of facts are that by 2020, most Americans under the age of eighteen will be non-white. By 2045, the average American, no matter what age they are, will be non-white. So this I, so I, I wonder if the type of platform and the type of race that that Trump ran, will even be possible in eight years, 12 years, 16 years out, given these changes in in demographics and how will that change the us versus them mentality with identity politics?
2: I think think it's only gonna be possible if voting rates and which demographics are voting stays constant, which I don't think it will. Um, Ultimately, I think what's gonna happen is the Republican Party, or at least a significant faction of it, will continue to stoke this sort of nationalist, uh, you know, race-based, um, well, appeals, uh, and and hopefully they will flame out. Uh, there just won't be enough people to support them to actually to actually have the political power to enforce those ideas.
0: Um, yeah. I mean, that so, so if there are just two parties in that scenario, it seems like the party of the minorities would win out because, like you said, the number of people who are in that first cohort of sort of the, you know, the more, the the more white American group is shrinking and shrinking every year. And, you know, the ardent Trump supporters aren't getting any younger, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, But I wonder if, So uh, one question I want to ask is that, do you think that we will ever see a return to boring, qualified politicians like, (laughs) you know, (laughs) like, or do you think we'll always see like going forward, you're going to need someone who's a Trump or a Kanye or maybe a Mark Cuban or maybe an Oprah? Like, are we going to get to that? Uh, Are we going to ever have normal political candidates or are we going to move towards sort of these cults of personalities and people who already occupy some real estate inside most Americans brains in order to get a big enough group. Because another thing I think is related is that we might break out of the two party system. I mean, one thing Steve Bannon said on his on the episode with Bill Maher is that he predicts there will be a three way race in 2020. So it could be, you know, the Republican Party, the Democrat Party, and then there might be a Democratic Socialist candidate or it could be um, somewhat like of a- libertarian or something. Or libertarian or whatever. So I wonder if, are we going to need this celebrity cult of personality to have a big enough group? And also, relatedly, do you think that that we might fraction out of the two-party system given what's been happening?
2: Well, I think, I think to answer the second question is like, we, the way that our electoral systems are set up, by and large, first past the post, um, you know, first past the post system means that we are going to ultimately always have two parties, um, but we're going to see massive party shift. So the electoral base for each of those parties might shift like the demographic demographic base and and their policies might shift too. last time you saw a party shift, I think, was in the 1960s when a lot of conservative Democrats, Dixiecrats who opposed the Civil Rights Act eventually just Became Republicans. I mean, people like Strom Thurmond, who is noted for having the longest filibuster on the Senate floor to filibuster the Civil Rights Act. He was a he was nominally a Democrat, but then he, I mean, his ideas were far more in line with the Republicans. Hmm. So I think you're more likely to see a party shift, really, than than a three way race mm-hmm. party system. That is, unless. Um, states start moving towards different ways of voting that aren't first past the post. So can you like explain I
0: the first past the post just so everyone's aware of it?
2: Oh, sure. So first past the post just means that, um, whoever first gets a majority within a defined geographic district, whichever candidate, uh, first gets a majority first gets past 50%. That candidate wins the seat. Uh, uh And so that's, that's the norm for most electoral districts. Maine, I think in 2018, or maybe it was 26, I'm sorry, it was in 2016, um, or maybe 2017. Anyway, Maine (laughs) recently switched uh, its voting to, I believe, ranked choice, or either runoff or ranked choice. But ranked choice is where the voter goes into the ballot, or goes into the the, uh, booth, and they rank all of the candidates. And... Each one of those candidates uh, is weighted appropriately. So if if I want, you know, candidate X to to win, I'll give him a one. And then if I say, oh, runner up is candidate Y, I want them to, you know, I'd be fine with them. I give them a two. And ultimately, it brings people closer to the center. Yeah, that seems like a better system because then even if
0: your top choice didn't win you still feel like you kind of won if your second choice or third choice won.
2: Yeah. First past the post incentivizes, uh, extreme partisanship. Hmm.
1: It makes a lot of sense just from a pure data perspective too. So if you think about ballots as they are now, it's about the most biased way or the, the best way you can ask a question to induce the most amount of bias in your answers. And from a data perspective, you don't want that bias in your data. So, you know, this ranking system is probably a lot better than another way that we could design ballots. And what I think would probably be an even better way to design a ballot is not even have people's names, just have issues. And then people yeah. can vote individually strongly on Strongly agree or
0: strongly disagree or somewhat yeah. agree, somewhat it would, disagree. It would be like a reverse
2: anonymous ballot.
0: Right? Yeah.
2: And then they'd be yeah. like,
0: Surprise, you're a Democrat. You thought you were a Republican. <laughs> well they're, I issues. mean there are
2: all those there are all those like gimmicky uh websites online where you can take like a political quiz. Yeah, yeah, I've done that. And some of them are set up so that it's just it's like set up to be contrarian. So it's like, Oh, you're actually uh, you know, <laughs> right, oh, right. <laughs> green or whatever. It's like okay, fine.
0: You actually um, should be voting for Jill Stein.
2: Yeah. Uh, uh, I don't know. <laughs> the tolerance for healing crystal rocks is very low. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, but anyways, I want to get to the second part
0: of the question. So, so, I mean, you raised a really good point, which is that the way the government is set up, it's hard not to have a two party system. But given the way the, you know, given where we are right now and how successful Trump's campaign was as an outsider, Do you think that in the future we have a better shot, like, you know, let's say for the Democrats, is their best strategy to put forward someone like Mark Cuban or Oprah or to put
2: someone forward like Kamala Harris? I mean, like what's good for the country or what's good for getting like, let's just
0: so this is (laughs) persuasion. So just simply what's the most effective way to get elected?
2: So the biggest problem that politicians have whenever they run for a national office is that a lot of them don't have a national profile, um, right? And so it's really hard for them to occupy the headspace of voters or potential voters. Remember that our um, our voting rates in this country are abysmal. Uh, they're usually they usually hover like what around forty five percent or something like mm-hmm. that. I mean, if that. Um, so really, the 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 great unconquered West or whatever you want to call it. Like the, the, the fertile land out there is people that don't routinely vote. Um I think they don't routinely vote because they've just been so disenfranchised that they just don't they mm-hmm. don't see government as ever possibly being a solution. Um but uh you know that is that is the uh the upside to having a celebrity candidate is that it's like you're coming at it from a different angle. You know, people right people are going to hear about mark cuban cuz they watched shark tank um and yeah. then when they see him on cnn they'll be like oh yeah the shark tank guy the same thing that happened with donald trump that somehow launched him into prominence
0: right yeah people. it's a, it's a lot easier to rebrand mark cuban than to introduce uh Evan McMallan or or you know one of these unknowns
2: yeah yeah definitely
1: So, do you think one of the ways we could get around this is to make an easier way for everyone to vote? I know there's a lot of issues with electronic voting, but.
0: Well, so I was actually thinking about this earlier. So, Australia and Belgium and certain other Mm -hmm. countries have compulsory voting, meaning. You might get fined. You get some sort of penalty if you do not vote. So it encourages 100% voter turnout. And they have near 100% voter turnout. The thing that's interesting is that America seems to have lots of hurdles in place, which you know, we can talk about why those hurdles are there. But from my perspective, why not just automatically register every American to vote when they turn 18? It's not that difficult. <laughs>
2: I think it's because eighteen-year-olds predictably uh, vote for the Democratic Party. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Where they vote left. Um, yeah, I mean that. It seems like a. It seems like a pretty wide-reaching solution is to just ha- enroll everyone automatically once they hit eighteen, and if you have an address on file, you should just have your ballot mailed to you. Yeah. Uh, and, and for people who are homeless or people that might have. A PO box. I'll get back to that in a second. Um, maybe it would be better to, you know, have uh, certain shelters be considered voting areas or precincts. Yeah, or so Native
0: that, Americans on on reservations who uh, don't have yeah. addresses.
2: Yeah, I, you know, just for for our listeners, there's a uh, an ongoing. Well, not. I mean, it's it's a dispute, but it's an ongoing case. It's not a legal case, I don't think yet, but. Uh, Native American voters in North Dakota uh, are effectively disenfranchised right now because they oftentimes have P.O. boxes instead of traditional addresses. And so North Dakota law requires that you have an address to register to vote. So you're effectively disenfranchising, uh, you know, a pretty, pretty large percentage of the population that predictably votes usually for one party or or one side. Yeah.
0: and doesn't the idea of addresses go completely against the Native American mindset and their values and being one with the land and not having this, this white man concept of ownership where you put up fences and you keep people out? I mean, it's amazing that we still haven't learned our lesson here and we're still trying to impose our ways on Native Americans, even after all of these
2: centuries of, of them suffering for, for our ways. I mean, I th- I think we've learned the lesson. It's just some people don't want to actually apply the, the teachings from the lesson, you know,
0: right. <laughs> like,
2: um, or they're being willfully ignorant or, or what have you. But, yeah, yeah. there are a lot of ways that we could reform our electoral system so that we actually have a true accounting of what people believe and where our country should go.
0: Right. And that's what I want to talk about next. And so now we're getting into the power of the vote. Wyoming has 579,000 people. California has almost 40 million people. Both of these states have two senators and the number of representatives is nowhere near proportional to the population. (laughs) So my question to you is, was this what the founders intended? I mean, we can't know for sure, but do you think this is what the founders intended? And given how vast the population differences are between states, should we update the system and also what's what is the electoral college trying to solve what is the goal of setting it up in this way versus just having it be a more direct democracy
1: i I think it's sort of what they intended what the founders intended but i think there's a huge lack of foresight not you know it's not at their own fault it's hard to see 300 years into the future or almost 300 years, but, you know, I think there are, there were definitely good reasons for the Electoral College to exist, and the way that the the whole system was set up, but now we probably need to change things a little bit. I think the Electoral College is stupid, I think a lot of people do, but there's just no action being taken, because it's so easy to do things, you can gerrymander, which is basically redrawing district lines. So voting is, it takes place in the favor of whatever party you care about. Um, You know, there's a lot of things that are wrong with the system now that weren't an issue with the system when it was created. So, you know, what do we do about that?
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, I was actually talking about this with some colleagues last night, is like if the, the senate was originally created to represent each state's government so i think before the 17th amendment it was the it, the state legislatures elected the senators hmm. so it, there was no direct election um by people and so you know if you want to continue with what the founders intended fine i mean i think we should probably change our thinking. It's been, you know, almost, cause what, like, cause what are they worried about? Are they worried that
0: every, you know, all the big populated States are going to vote to just take all of Wyoming's
2: resources? And well, I mean, I think back then it was, it was people's lives were just so much more local. So like you actually did have much more of a strong local affiliation. You probably would consider yourself a Virginian before you considered yourself, you know, a an American. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they wanted to preserve that, that uh, system where each state could be a laboratory uh, for experimentation. The only problem is, or not the only problem, but a significant one is that uh, you have huge amounts of people that live in states that can't necessarily, we should not be subjecting people to laboratory experiments, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, each state can run itself however it wants and it can put into place its own policy, but if people can't. Materially or physically vote with their feet, then what's the point of having that? Mm-hmm. Um, That's a good point. I, my solution is: I think every year, I think there should be a uh, maybe an account tied with your social security number uh, that allows you that that grants you a stipend to physically move every year. Um, if you think things are bad in Wyoming, if you don't like the tax law there, if you don't like that they. Uh, I don't know if they do ban abortions or or whatever, but if you don't like policy there, then you should be able to move and vote with your feet and go to a place that actually. And would are you,
0: are you uh, supposing that the number of people in a state would then change? Like the representatives would change based on people moving with their feet? I think it might.
2: I think it very well might. Um, and and the 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 other side to this is that I think it would be really interesting, and I'm just kind of bandying yeah, ideas. Yeah, figure. But mm-hmm. but if a state loses, uh, if it goes below a certain population threshold, should it have its statehood revoked because it's had mm-hmm. its its it's proven that it it failed in the experimentation process. Yeah, I mean, like, why do we need North Dakota and South
0: Dakota? Like, is it really that different depending on if you live in one versus the other? Should they really get forced twice as many senators as California? I mean, it's yeah, it's it's a it's a tough to it's tough to defend so few people having so much power proportional to people who, you know, states that have a. 60 70 times the amount of people. I mean imagine if you had 70 Wyoming's. Like that's basically what's what California is like.
2: Yeah. I mean, imagine if you didn't have a vote at all like me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have senators. Uh DC has like 670,000 people uh who live yeah. live unattached to politics. They're just kind of we're just going about our days doing things and you know, we're, we're there's there's only an invisible line that separates D.C. residents from Virginia or Maryland residents. Um, so why are they you know, why are we disenfranchised? Right. Uh, yeah, I mean, there, there are so many questions there. And, and the Senate itself as an institution needs to be radically reworked uh, because right now the rules that are in place allow a very, very small minority of people to gum up the works unnecessarily. So if you could change
0: one law or one rule as it pertains to the Senate, what would
2: you change? Oh man, that's tough. That is really tough. Maybe, um, maybe reform. So there's this thing in the Senate called unanimous consent and the Senate only operates off of unanimous consent, meaning that there has to be, No objection to someone bringing up a topic to be discussed on the floor. So let's say Bernie Sanders wants to talk Medicare for all on the floor. He normally goes through a process where he asks for unanimous consent. And very often it's granted. It's just a parliamentary procedure. But theoretically, someone, a senator, could hold up the process and say, nope, I don't grant consent. um, And so it will never be discussed. Hmm. Uh, So I think looking into reforming that might be a good option uh, because it definitely limits what you can talk about.
0: Yeah. It seems like the only rational way that you could strike that down from being a topic of discussion is if it just is simply irrelevant or if it doesn't, if it doesn't affect enough, like a high enough threshold of Americans, then Mm -hmm. yeah, I think you can have a basis for it. But if if something as important as Medicare for All is, is struck down just simply because it's not politically advantageous for you to talk about it, then, yeah, I agree. I think that's pretty bogus.
2: And there are institutional ways to get over those hurdles. Like, you know, there, you can file, you know, someone can filibuster, but then you can file a motion for cloture and you can guarantee that the issue is brought up. Yeah, the but- whole
0: filibuster thing is insane to me. I mean, it really is. Like, I watched the Showtime show The Circus. And it really is like so much of it. I mean, you know, they also talk about security theater in, you know, airlines, but it does seem almost like a political theater to a large extent. And I wonder how much of this theater is actually helpful versus how much of it is just like, you know, people walking around in their suits, feeling important, like doing certain things that no one really knows about behind closed doors.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think by the time people get to the floor and like by the time people get to the floor to vote, they most likely have made up their mind already. They've already done the political calculus that's needed to like right. see like, OK, well, I have, you know, OK, there's a vote to repeal the medical device tax. I got the, the doctors weighed in with me, the hospitals. I got it. You know, yeah. They have, the Kavanaugh no. hearing
0: was the most, you know, evident to me of just the fact that It was so clear, like, you know, Grassley had made up his mind before any word was spoken. And it didn't matter. It did not matter what Christine Blasey Ford said. She could have said any combination of words. And Kavanaugh could have said almost any combination of words. And not a single vote would change on either side. Well, maybe more so on one side than the other. But it it does seem like in most cases... This Congress people make up their decision before
2: any words are spoken on the floor guaranteed guaranteed uh, you know and 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 they do make a, a calculus. I think the one you know watching watching the hearings you know as unsettling as they were I mean as as deeply visceral as you know hearing people's accounts of, of uh, you know a crime um, as unsettling as they were you can't help but in a cynical way, look at that whole Jeff Flake debacle. I don't know right. if you guys. Oh that,
0: yeah.
2: Senator Flake, Jeff Flake started like huffing and puffing and showing disapproval and like yeah, this whole, the this whole this
0: moderate whole, theatrical performance.
2: This whole dramatic process where he goes, oh, I don't know, oh, like he shakes around and then and then predictably he goes to the floor and he votes in favor right. of the confirmation. I mean, it was it was a whole media play. He's yeah. not running for reelection at least to the Senate. Um, so,
0: the, but- so the other thing that, that this actually leads into the next thing that I want to talk about, which is the power of money. But so so Jeff Flake, a lot of people, a lot of analysts that I've uh, that I've read have said that the reason he had that whole theatrical performance where he made it seem like he might vote in favor of Christine Basifor, but then he ended up voting predictably Republican in favor of Kavanaugh was because he was setting up his post-Congressman career as a lobbyist or as someone who is able to influence politics. And typically lobbyists tend to be former Congress people. So the next thing I want to talk about is just the role that lobbyists play in U.S. politics. I'm interested what, what your opinion is on that, Brett. And also, what can we do to make sure that politicians represent the will of the voter rather than the will of... Special interests, or whatever group has the deepest pockets.
2: Yeah, I mean, on one point, I disagree with some of the analysts. I think Jeff Flake is probably setting himself up to run in twenty twenty oh, really? to be a primary challenger. Yeah, because there's a deep section of the Republican Party, you know, the Freedom Caucus in the House, like the far right voters. They they will vote for Trump, um, but but there is a hearty contingent that are looking. To maintain their material interests. So they're going to vote for Republicans, lower taxes, all of that. Um, but they need someone that can still put up the air, like, that, that can actually be civil. And Jeff Blake can be civil. He can, mm. he keeps the mask on the system that uh, wor- doesn't work for a lot of people and generally works for a select few. Um, and he sort of maintains that that mask of civility. So, you know, I think that's what he's setting himself up for. Um
0: yeah, yeah. But let's talk uh, about like like lobbyists in general and the other thing that so there are pros and cons to having a candidate that's an establishment candidate like let's say ted cruz or marco rubio or hillary clinton where they have the establishment funding but with that come a certain amount of ious right mm-hmm. versus someone who's like you know let's say a trump or a mark cuban or someone who ran on their own as an outsider who doesn't have the same establishment IOUs, but maybe they have other things that are, maybe because they are an outsider and they're not ingrained in the system, there are less checks on what sort of policies they can put forward. So I'm curious how you guys, both of you, view the role of lobbyists. Some people think that lobbyists is a necessary function of American politics because you would not be able to communicate everything that's important to every politician unless you had a representative, representative who was well-funded who can go talk to them. But maybe there's an alternative, maybe we can, there is some way to represent the the groups of people. And, and one example of this is in Seattle, they have implemented a system of democracy vouchers. And democracy <clears throat> vouchers are basically, they send every Seattleite Five dollars democracy vouchers, and then they can write these vouchers to any candidate they like, and that gets converted into real money so that they can fund their campaign. So this allows for people who, like, let's say your whole platform is that you wanna help homeless people, right? You're not gonna get a lot of money from special interest groups or lobbyists. There's, and you're probably not gonna get a lot of money from constituents because your constituents are homeless people. But if you can convince people who don't have money, but who are citizens, like the homeless people or poor people who uh, you know, have empathy for homeless people, then you can actually get enough funding to run a real competitive uh, campaign. So do you think this uh, campaign, do you think this is a good solution or, or is lobbyists a good solution or what solution do you think would be most beneficial for America?
1: It's, well, I'd like to hear Brett's um, opinion on this as well but but I think it's good to have a mix of systems that can kind of work for all the different people so there is a place for lobbyists and there is a place for these vouchers and I think there's a place for these strategies that are different from both of them that help another group of the population you know so if we layer all of these things on top of each other then no strategy is um, better than the others but they can all work together to kind of create a better system overall
2: yeah i think you know i agree with that i think it's best to have a mix and i think uh, the voucher system could certainly work i haven't really looked at it enough to think about all the positives and negatives but i'm definitely in favor of public financing of elections Uh, so much of politicians time is spent fundraising it's spent mm. holding out a little tin can and calling people and i guarantee most of them hate it i mean i know politicians if you're a house member you're running for re-election every two years you are going to fundraisers constantly constantly if you're not going and constantly getting money from lobbyists or whoever else can can afford to go to the fundraisers if you aren't going to those every every week if you don't have a few of those lined up you're not going to have money in your pack. You're not going to have money in your, your campaign committee. You're not going to have much help. Um, Mm -hmm. So public financing, financing of elections actually short circuits that whole process and just says, if you can get a certain number of signatures, then great. We'll give you, you know, you, you get this amount of money to go, uh, you know, hold events or, or do something like that. Another thing I think you could do is implement, uh, one, the fairness doctrine, again, so that media outlets do have to report both sides, um, or at mm-hmm. least as sides of the issue. I think they generally tend to do that already, but again, those, you know.
0: Yeah, well, one one thing I've heard as a new term is, the, is steel manning. So everyone knows about straw man argument, where you say like, can you believe these Democrats? They want to kill babies. <laughs> After they're born, like, you know, like they say, like the most outrageous <laughs> yeah. thing they possibly can. And no Democrats actually want that. Right. I mean, they're, it's a straw man argument. But yeah. one thing I've heard referred to recently, and I had never heard it before, is steel manning, which is basically hmm. putting up the best possible argument For your opponent, so that you can actually take it in a way where your opponent would agree with the way that you're representing his or her view. So saying like, "Can you believe that they want women to be able to have the choice, if there are health or (laughs) other personal reasons that they might not be prepared to bear and take care of a child at this time?" And, you know, it's it's a much different it leads to much different conversations where it's not just like basically a roast of your straw man opponent, but it actually leads to more uh, nuanced discussions of what the real issues are. So I I wonder if this fairness doctrine could uh, progress that sort of uh,
2: steel manning. I mean, it would be nice. I don't maybe this is the cynic in me, but like politics at the end of the day is about your is about winning. You know the election is about winning the ultimate goal is to win and so most people will usually not uh they usually aren't going to go in you know with the best of intentions in terms of you know setting up their opponent's argument right. uh, and actually having a substantive policy discussion because sometimes policy is really tricky and difficult and you get into the weeds you know there's an, there's an old adage which is uh if you're explaining you're losing and oftentimes complicated Uh, policy explaining like like, you can't expect that's a really good quote i like that yeah and and more often than not that's why pithy slogans win the day yeah um
0: that's why I, i love i mean some politicians do this really well obviously donald trump does this really well build the wall lock her up but Yo, Crooked
1: Hillary, yeah, Crooked Hillary. Hamming,
0: Hillary the nicknaming line. is just because that sticks yeah. in, your brand, in, in your brain, in your brain. But even other candidates, like Andrew Gillum, the yeah. candidate for Florida, he. So the big, the big scandal around him is that he accepted a ticket to Hamilton from uh, you know an undercover agent, and you're not supposed to accept any funds. And this is the main thing that his opponent has railed him for, is accepting this Hamilton ticket. And his response was, Florida's got 99 problems and Hamilton ain't one. <laughs> it's just <laughs> like... I mean... And, and then there was another quote where he was like... Um, like, his opponent was saying, like, are you saying I'm racist? And he's like, I'm not saying you're racist. I'm saying other racists say you're racist. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, how do you respond to that? but But I agree. I mean, these these pithy remarks that aren't about explaining the nuances of policy, but they're really about getting that tweet worthy, viral worthy, you know, one liner. That's what seems to really buoy politicians to the the forefront. And so there's just one other question I want to ask before we get into the worst case, best case and most likely scenario. (laughs) And this is about perhaps the greatest change to American economy that has ever happened before, which Justin and I have talked about a lot, which is the idea of joblessness as a result of automation and the potential need for something like universal basic income. I mean, just to to uh, point out some facts, truck drivers is the most common Mm -hmm. job in twenty nine states and there are already self-driving trucks on the road. It just hasn't fully gone into effect. And when you count all the other Uber drivers, delivery people, all of those, it is a huge portion of America. And this is just one asset, uh, one subsection of automation that will cause joblessness. Of course, there's retail. There are many. uh, Oh, yeah. it's, It's pretty undeniable that in the next 10 years there are going to be there's going to be massive joblessness. So my question to you guys is, how do you think each political party is going to deal with this? what do you think the path to UBI will be? I mean, some people think, oh yeah, it's clearly a democratic socialist type of issue, but I've heard some really part, uh, smart people thinking that Republicans will will support this issue. So I'm interested how you guys think this
1: is gonna play out. So I think in terms of the current party that's in right now, I think there will be as much of A fight against joblessness as we can possibly imagine like it'll be to the point where they're probably trying to stifle growth in the economy to keep jobs because that's basically what the current platform is all propped up on is keeping American jobs Um, now if they're fighting against robots rather than Mexicans you know there's I don't know there's there's different things that they'll use I think to to fight against this joblessness Um,
0: I mean, what can they do? Because like, for instance, you know, China has complete control over the private sector so they mm -hmm. can actually say companies must keep this many employees year over year or else they will be penalized. But American government doesn't have the same sort of influence over what Amazon or Apple or Google does. So, I mean, I agree they are trying, you know, Trump has tried really hard to keep manufacturing and, you know, those good old clean coal jobs in the country (laughs) but what can they do once this really takes hold
1: I think well I think there are things that they can do to maybe pass some seemingly um, straightforward policy which has implications down the line in terms of like keeping jobs now that would that would require long-term planning, which I'm not sure a lot of people in the White House are capable of doing right now. (laughs) Um, But, you know, there's, I don't know, I think there are probably ways. I don't know enough about how policy is passed to know what they can do. Um, But I would would be curious to know what Brett thinks on this, too.
2: You know, the ongoing problem with policy creation is that in our system, our system does not incentivize long-term thinking. Um, I mentioned earlier that reps have a two-year term. Um, so they're thinking those two years, unless they're in a really safe district and they can think about internal politicking within their caucus or conference, um, and they, you know, they're in like an unopposed race or whatever. Um, but generally, we're not very well-equipped to actually deal with these long-term problems like climate change or automation. I think what's most likely to happen, middle of the road, is is uh, there will be massive entitlement reform. And by entitlements, I'm referring to Medicaid, Medicare, Social Security, SSI. Um, those systems are, you know, at the very least 55 or in, in the case of Social Security, I think 80 years old. And they could do for a serious revamp The problem is, is, well, when when you say
0: revamp, do you mean increasing entitlements or
2: decreasing? So so that's the question. Um, I think if you generally are on the more conservative side or Republican side, your view on this is that uh, they need to be privatized, that these services should be privatized, that the private sector does it better. Um, I strongly disagree. Uh, I think that it's a critical function of our government to have I mean, think about the term social security. What does that actually mean? It means that we don't have. Exactly. You don't have old people in poverty eating dog food. Like, I mean, quite literally, that was the case in so many places. Um, So, you know, I think the the middle of the road scenario is that there's entitlement reform that streamlines a lot of these different disparate programs and makes it so that there is a true safety net that actually uh, meets people's needs. That will, of course, mean like a lot of tax policy changes that will probably affect, you know, people, uh, professionals or high income earners. Um, Right. You know, sometimes it's.
0: Do you predict that this is going to be an issue in 2020 or not yet? We'll have to wait until 2024 until people will actually care about this.
2: I think Medicare for all is is the first step in really revamping how we view the entitlement system. And my hope is that we really make it so that it's far more robust? Um, we've we've had some issues with funding Social Security uh, fully. I think people in our generation will probably get about seventy percent of what we've of what we would normally get under the current actuarial calculations. Um, but that means that we need to have a big revamp in policy, probably an increase in taxes, taking off the cap um, on. Uh, payroll taxes, I think, or uh, FICA, like as soon as you earn, I think something like $150,000, every dollar earned after that is not subject to FICA taxes, which pay for social security and Medicare. Uh, Interesting. Uh, Yeah. So I think, I think what's going to happen is we're going to realize, oh my God, there are millions of people that are going to be out of work they're going to be materially disadvantaged. They might not be able to afford food, uh, mm-hmm. let alone healthcare, let alone you know shelter. I mean, all these other things. So, we're we're coming to a crux point, most yeah. definitely. So,
0: 20- I wanna I wanna ask a little bit more about this: how you think the taxes part will plan out will pan out? Because one thing that Yuval Noah Harari has talked about as far as universal basic income and joblessness mm-hmm. as a result of AI is that. Joblessness does not have to be a bad thing. In fact, (laughs) it could be the best thing ever to happen to humans. Because if you think about what's actually going on, we are getting more and more efficient at producing the goods and services that are required for daily life. And we need less and less humans to produce those goods and services because the machines are handling it pretty much on their own. So if you look at it in this high-level view, we could all just be you know, running around, doing whatever our hearts desire, fulfilling whatever our calling is in life, spending more time with our family, traveling, writing, spending more time in the creative arts. And this could be funded by the extra production that is delivered by auto, you know, by better automation and more efficient processes. So but it seems like in order for that to happen, there has to be a redistribution of wealth. And the redistribution would be from the companies that are making all this extra profit because of how efficient their systems are to the citizens. So I'm curious if you think this is politically viable because it seems like it's counter to everything we're seeing right now, which is um, you know a historic major corporate tax cut which goes in the opposite direction, which is decreasing the amount of funds from the big American companies, um, which, you know, Americans may have to pay for as that debt compiles. I'm curious if you guys think politically this is feasible and if it might come from a, a Democrat or a Republican Congress, you know, if and when it comes to a head when You know, let's say joblessness has become so rampant that it's worse than the Great Depression. Mm -hmm. And yet our GDP is better than ever. You know, what's what's going to happen then? Do you guys predict? It's really hard to to predict, obviously. And maybe this is a good frame for our worst case, best case and most likely (laughs) scenario, because we can't say for sure what's going to happen, but we can imagine what would be a really bad outcome, a really good outcome, and what's a more reasonable outcome for us to expect. So I'm yeah. I'm happy to, to go first or if you guys wanna
1: want to go first, up to you. Well I did kind of have an answer to your previous question. Okay. Um, I'll take a stab. Yeah. Um but <laughs> <Good luck. laughs> so I don't know, you know, what, what you were thinking in terms of what the tax amount would be for some of the big corporations I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing that they have the incentive or they have fewer taxes you know if if there were a tax cut we need to cut spending in the government but we didn't see that happening which is what the real problem is when there's a tax cut you need a subsequent cut in spending not an increase in spending but you know if If these companies, let's say Tesla, makes twice as much money as it used to, I would say that's probably a net positive on society. I trust Tesla to make a bigger impact in society than I trust the government right now. Um, And I do trust the government in a lot of things, but there's been a lot of times where the government seems to... um, Give me one sec. The government seems to not perform as well as they should um, and and I think that's where the the argument comes from there's there's a lot of people on the right that think the the government isn't very good at doing anything that it sets out to, which I don't fully agree with and there's a lot of people on the left that think the government is the end- all be all to everything, which I also don't think is necessarily the the best so you know you have to have a nuanced conversation about what where the money will go and what the government will do with this increased tax. Right.
0: It does seem like collecting taxes and spending those taxes in an effective way, which is basically defending people and putting a safety net in place, those are the main functions of government as I see them. So I'm curious how you think the government might go about redistributing some of the wealth from the corporations, that benefit from all of automation to the citizens that are displaced, their jobs are displaced because of the automation and whether that might be a Democrat or a Republican.
2: Yeah, I think it, I think it even goes beyond the bounds of both parties. Um, I think if you want our current political economy to survive, capitalist one, um, you need to have an extremely robust social safety net. Uh, you need to have a social democracy. Um, And, you know, that's mostly been the in the realm of of the Democratic Party Uh, by, you know, European or by world standards. Bernie Sanders and the left wing of the Democratic Party is a social democratic one. Um, They aren't calling for ownership of the means of production, uh, which would qualify them as democratic socialists. Hmm. Um, I think what's more likely to happen is that as things get worse and worse when it comes to climate or when it comes to joblessness as people's material conditions become more and more affected. I think there are going to be more people calling for active government intervention to solve these problems. Um, which I agree with. I mean, I think it is the role of government to address climate or to address those things that are just so beyond the scope of private individuals or corporations or other smaller entities. Um, yeah, But it's, you know, the way that we'll actually see that play out, I would not be surprised if, uh, as our transportation systems become more tenuous and less human-reliant, um, and as our agricultural systems become much more conglomerated uh, and automated, I would not be surprised if you started to see the government at the very least engage in, uh, like, partial ownership of national corporations in the same way that amtrak operates so amtrak mm. i think is a, is a private corporation but the government is a shareholder i think it's the sole shareholder there's some sort of legal chicanery that allows them to uh you know operate them and and, and subsidize um i think that's probably at the very least going to be more common in agriculture in transportation uh it could extend to other sectors too that are greatly affected and which greatly affect people's ability to live comfortably. Um, so you could see that with housing even, uh, yeah, yeah. it
0: does seem like cause you know, another thing that Scott Adams has proposed is basically having a president presidential list of all the different startups and companies that are solving some of these big challenges like climate change, or like healthcare, and basically funneling funding, but also just attention, you know, media spotlight attention to these issues so that then these companies can then actually solve the problems. And that can, in the future, maybe that will include some government funding. And it seems like from the Democratic side that it's more about just the government doing it on its own with You know, maybe the government just gets the money from the companies like the big Google, Facebook, Apples Mm -hmm. of the world, of America, and then distributing it themselves. So it seems like I could imagine either party solving the issue of automation and joblessness. It would just go about it from either more of a private or more of a public focus. So anyways, now I think it'd be good for us to talk about the worst case scenario. So this is always fun what is the worst so let's just take like let's let's say i don't know how long you guys want to do 50 years out is that too long <laughs> that might be too long No, that
2: works no 50 years is okay cool so let's
0: say 50 years from today what is the worst case scenario for how the future of politics in america will look
1: okay i guess i'll i'll, I'll go for it um So I think there are so in fifty years. There's a lot of things that can go wrong, so that makes this question fun. Um, (laughs) There, so in fifty years, so a lot of bad decisions aren't made typically at once, or a lot of bad things don't happen just all at once. But there tends to be a whole bunch of minor steps that lead to this terrible scenario. A lot of people say that. You know, we have certain presidents, you know, the current president, for example, that it's not just Trump that's the issue. There's a deep-seated underlying issue that there is a huge portion of the U.S. that was disenfranchised by the joblessness that's been created as the economy shifts. Um, Now, I think there are a lot of scenarios where basically we turn into, we have an economy that basically goes into a depression and we have this extreme inequality but the people with the power have no incentive to change anything because they're living just fine Hmm. and it maybe it looks something like an extreme russia or or an extreme china scenario like an oligarchy Um, yeah yeah you know i think that's very close to the worst case it's you know, maybe a monarchy would be the worst, <laughs> but or but we're I think
0: all dead would be the worst.
1: Okay. <laughs> yeah, because of bad decisions made. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's this bad scenario. I think has happened before, but it. You know, I think I think we've hit these very uh, worst case scenarios and have rebounded. But you know, maybe at some point we get to a, a situation where we don't rebound and we just kind of stay in this. Um, terrible situation for most of humanity but you know the people in power don't really care kind of Mm -hmm. like a dystopian fiction book that you've that everyone has probably read before Mm
2: -hmm. yeah it kind of reminds me of um you know when i think about what's the most likely worst case i know i'm combining two categories right right. what's the most likely worst case is probably something like the movie or the book children of men oh Uh, yeah i don't know if you've seen that i love that movie Right, so for for listeners, there's a fertility crisis in this dystopian future that's led to um, just societal collapse because people aren't being born. So there's you know problems with agriculture, there's refugees, immigrants, and it all takes place in the UK uh, from the perspective perspective of people who are relatively insulated from most of these issues. Um, I see that as being actually a very likely worst case scenario. Is that The freedoms that we enjoy now are rights to privacy, you know, the things, the the liberal freedoms that we enjoy, um, rights to privacy, rights to property, right to speech, right to conduct that's legal. I mean, that will right to be nonconformist that will um, go away in the face of huge climate and environmental disaster that leads to other breakdowns in social structures. I mean, the Syrian yeah. civil war originally we can now trace it back to there were a lot of farmers that were very discontent because there had been a drought that just ruined their crop yields hmm. uh, so we're probably more likely to see that in the future, and our governments are probably going to become more reactionary uh, in trying to preserve the status quo
0: yeah, and the other thing in the in children of men that I think is pertinent is that. The main character, he lives in downtown London Mm. and everything looks more or less what you would expect London to look like in the future. But then London is walled and outside Mm. of London proper is just chaos, refugees, people living off of just eating trash. And there's this small enclave of people who are doing all right. But everything outside of that is a disaster. And on the, you know, on the TV and the news, they talk about the former United States of America, where it's basically like Syria, like what you were just talking about. And this, I think this world where there's sort of an oligarchy or a small number of people who are doing all right, you know, maybe it's the people that were lucky enough to have equity in one of the companies that was able to capitalize on automation and AI and everyone else who doesn't have any equity, who was just... You know, just a poor salaried man who got automated away his job. Those people are all in the refugees on the other side of the wall category. Yeah. I mean, that's that's pretty much my, my worst case scenario as well.
2: Yeah. What do you think
1: for the best?
2: Oh, sorry. You go ahead, Brett. You no, know, I just, I think it's also, that worst case is also, it seems incredibly likely it's, if we continue yeah. with the status quo. Yeah, with, yeah. I don't think we will. I, I, I'm, you know, through yeah. all of my cynicism, <laughs> I, well, I think we can solve these problems, but, uh, we got to do it really quickly now.
0: <laughs> I think there's a lot of truth in, in what you just said, especially given the state of the current party in power and the platform that that party has. And, mm-hmm. and look, I don't consider myself a Democrat or a Republican. I consider myself an independent, and I agree with certain issues that Republicans talk about. However, to me, it seems like the core difference between the conservative philosophy and the liberal philosophy is that the liberal philosophy is more about we're all in this together. Whatever challenges we face, we're going to figure it out together. And, you know, we're going to respect everyone, blah, blah, blah. Whereas mm. the conservative philosophy seems to be. Look, we got to look out for our own. We got to make sure no no one else impedes on what has worked for us thus far. We got to, you know, where it's more of it's it is inherently more of a like us versus them. And if you Mm -hmm. if you lead, if you let that play out over the next several decades, you know, we talked about 50 years from now, if you let that play out in, you know, given automation and joblessness and AI and all of these trends that we've been talking about, you know, climate change is certainly a big one as well as people are displaced, crops are disrupted. That will likely lead to a children of men scenario. And yeah, it might be great for you. Like if you're a Republican who has a lot of uh, equity in some of these companies, yeah, you might be one of the few who's living in downtown London, living an okay life. But are you willing to sacrifice the well-being of 90, you know, all of the people Bernie Sanders represents? <laughs> and, and
2: here I want to even challenge the idea that life will be better for people that have the means. Life will be proportionally better. Like everyone else's life right. will be so pittier that your life of being able to access, you know, whatever, you know, in the future... Perhaps an avocado might be considered an exotic food because it requires so much water to produce. But and I know we laugh about it now, but it's it's a very real yeah, possibility. Yeah. I mean, um, but remember, like in Children of Men, Clive Owen's uh cousin or whoever, the guy he visits to get the transportation passes, his life looks kinda cool. Like he's in a tall skyscraper, but it still ultimately sucks. Like yeah. his- so curtailed he's looking at Michelangelo's David not in its proper cultural context he's just looking at it in this like sterile ass horrible room like if he were wealthy nowadays he could just fly to Florence or wherever it is or Rome and look at it in all of its splendor so you know I think that's that's one of the ways to politically reinforced to people that might not be on board with changing the status quo for the better is to say we can change it for the better of everyone
0: yeah you just
2: you just need to let go of of you know it's not just like
0: you know it's not just wealthy people living in their own little biosphere where they filter all the outside air and they you know they get it all working for them but they can't just take a stroll down the street because there's too much pollution and crime it's like. Is that really what what people want or did they want a world where you know, like you said, you can fly to Florence and look at the David in its context and and experience culture and not have to worry about dying of you know, crime or environment or anything like that? And I think yeah. also with like space exploration, like with colonizing Mars and with potentially getting resources and with all the developments in science and technology We can solve some of these seemingly unsolvable problems, and we just need to put our best foot forward and and try to do it. But the divisiveness goes against any of that forward
2: progress. It's going to get a lot worse before it gets better, I think. Um, In the context of, you know, to bring it back to the elections, this whole... Trumped up, ridiculous, like migrant caravan thing that Fox has been covering, you know, to well, to inflame, you know, nationalists. Right. Patterns. Right. Um, if people think that's bad, like, I mean, how many tens of millions of people live in Latin America who are going to be affected by climate change are just going to sit there and sit? No. Yeah. People, well, I and think, the other thing is that his response yeah, was, was like, I mean,
0: yeah, the, the other thing is that his response was to say, OK, we're going to cut off funding to these Central American countries, we're gonna cut off humanitarian aid because they're sending over too many people who we don't want. But what that does is if you cut off humanitarian aid, it's gonna make the situation worse and worse for Central Americans worse. and therefore more of them are gonna to wanna to come over. So I think the most crucial idea that we can possibly instill to any person who might listen to this podcast is that we're all in this together. There's only one planet. Anything that's fucked up in one side of the world is going to negatively affect you on the other side of the world. And we need to keep that in mind. We're all we're all earthlings, first and foremost. And that's not even to say that we should just focus on humans. If we let our environment and the, the ecosphere get out of whack, it is going to negatively affect not just animals, but also humans.
2: Yeah, and... And to pivot a little bit, I think the best case scenario, I mean, I'm yeah. sure we can all Yeah, yeah, let's talk about things. it. But like, I would like to, I see climate change as being a global human hurdle. Like we need to solve that issue. And I think it's the first one, um, or at least its character is ultimately geoengineering. Like we've gotten to the point where there's enough carbon and methane in the atmosphere that it's trapping enough uh, heat that, you know, we are, the climate's being impacted. Um, and the only way to, to reverse that is to switch to renewables or to a cleaner energy source. And then also somehow, I don't know, I'm not a scientist, but somehow deal with the gases and deal with the, the already produced, uh, not symptoms, but the causes. Um, mm-hmm. Hopefully that will lead us into a new era where we do move into geoengineering, where we can Go to where we can where we as a species don't have all of our eggs in one basket on one rock and we're able to move to other rocks yeah. <laughs> and live successfully there and and I think to do so, to get to the point where geoengineering is really uh, viable, we really need to switch. We need to reconsider and reevaluate our, our values and the political economy that is based off of those values. So do we want one that is constantly based off of voracious production? Right. Uh, GDP we...
0: growth, you know, not yeah. even just how much GDP, but how much more are we putting out there compared to last year? And growth is in- that <laughs> growth rate increasing? It's, it's like, when are we
2: going to be satisfied? Exactly. Growth isn't limitless. Like we need to figure out it's incumbent on us before we even go out amongst the stars or whatever you want to say, uh, to figure out how to actually create a society and, a, and an economy that guarantees people's health and wellbeing. Uh, but also make sure that we aren't going beyond what we can support.
0: Yeah. and And that's very similar to my best case scenario as well, which is that I think, As we look forward into how technology is changing, we don't need all of the infrastructure that ends up creating all of this pollution that we have today. We don't need all of these highways. We don't need to dedicate something like 50% of our cities to cars, to roads. If we adopt more futuristic, systems like Elon Musk's boring companies where we take to, we take advantage of three-dimensional space and go below ground or autonomous drones that can handle all the delivery in three to, in three-dimensional space above ground then we can basically get rid of all a large portion of the concrete that's currently on the wor- on the earth and replace it with trees vegetation allow some of the animals to come back and we can still have as you know as much production and everything that we have today but by using renewable energy sources and by bringing back trees and by going back to what earth was like before we you know screwed everything up then we there would be a much better world for everyone and much more sustainable and just much more pleasant world to live in
2: absolutely
1: yeah i definitely agree with you guys on that i kind of took a different turn Okay. Um, in my answer. So mine was more in the context of what what will change politically. Right, that right. You know, that will be the... So one thing that, that we've talked about a lot is GDP growth. I think that's a terrible metric. And, you know, maybe there's GDP per capita, which is maybe a little bit better. But it still doesn't take into account the variance of how wealthy individuals are. Mm. So So if you're talking about... If you're trying to evaluate how well an investment fund does, you look at the the growth, like the absolute growth over the standard deviation of the growth, which just means if you have a higher standard deviation or in the context of the economy, a um, lot higher inequality, then the score is going to go down. But if mm. you had... Because that's, you know, if you're dividing a, a bigger number, then the score goes down. But if you have small variance and you divide by a small number, then it shoots up. So your score gets better when the variance between individual wealth uh, decreases. You know, so there's there's a lot of different metrics that we can optimize for. Um, so is your I,
0: best case scenario basically having minimum deviance?
1: Well... So that was just that was just one one idea that I've had uh, recently. There might be a metric like that that exists already. Well, there's the
0: happiness index, which yeah. does tend to be higher in countries that have less income inequality, like the Scandinavian countries.
1: Yeah, there's just a lot of um, I don't know if there's a lot of objectiveness that goes into like a happiness index. I would have to look at. I've I've heard of it. I've never actually seen what it entails. Well, it's
0: just, it's just based on feedback. So it's based on survey responses. Yeah. Well, I think they also take into account things like the crime rate, things like the rate of pollution. And then Mm. they also take into account,
2: you know, just people's responses. And, you know, life satisfaction um, and contentment. I I like going on this track of what's the best case in the political world. Like what good we see something I'm always harping on about is civic engagement, which sounds really lame, but so many people are not in a position where they can be civically engaged. Um, Civic engagement, I'll I'll, I'll give you a secret, is that most of politics comes down to people showing up. Um, Like so many decisions are made because people don't show up or so many decisions are come to because people just don't show up. And a lot of times people don't show up because I don't know, their kids are sick or they can't afford daycare or they need to cook or they are working three jobs, part-time jobs and they're trying to support a family. I mean, there are material conditions that lead to people not having the time to be engaged. Um, So I think a way to solve that is to guarantee people's ability to live comfortably. Food, food, medical care, shelter, child care, you know, what we should consider the basics. And then people can actually get civically engaged in groups and associations and can actually voice their interests for what is good policy. Um, They can go to local, you know, I, I grew up in New England where we have a town meeting system where if you show up to the town meeting, it is a direct democracy. Like, it's an mm. assembly of people. It's actually kind of funny. You see a real smattering of people in, you know, what's usually like the middle school auditorium. Um, and there's a town moderator, and he just, you know, rattles off different policy proposals, and people go, aye, or nay, or stuff like that. But, yeah. but that, it doesn't happen so often because people don't show up because they can't.
0: Right. Huh? Well, it does, it does seem to me like it is a little bit inconvenient to have to go and show up at these things and do it in person. I wonder there's if there's a way, you know, looking forward into the future where we can focus more on the individual policies and we can get a large percentage of people engaged to actually give their viewpoints and ask the questions in an unbiased way and then aggregate all of that data to really know What are the policies that people care about the most? And how do people feel about those policies? And then making changes to our system of government based on all of that information in Mm -hmm. real time, maybe algorithmically. So I guess if I were to alter my best case scenario to be more in line with the system of politics, I would say if we can move to some system where every voter every year or uh, maybe every single day we measure all of their different viewpoints and we aggregate that data and it feeds into the system and decisions are made right away. And we still have some old-fashioned human input, like maybe some, maybe people or maybe Congress votes on changes to the algorithm. But the algorithm itself kind of <laughs> runs
2: on its own. Yeah, it's interesting. That would imagine, a ima- like so many politicians are... Are lawyers? Could you imagine the interesting, uh, like the switch from having a majority lawyer uh, or professional Congress to one that's like it's just computer science? But I mean, it would (laughs) would be it would change a lot of. uh, I don't know. Right. Well, it also could be like you could be
0: more of a philosopher or more of just a, you know, a psychologist or a human, you know, Mm. humanities type person. You might find a lot of of classicists like classics might be the most uh more popular
1: <laughs>
2: yeah um, <laughs> what um what do you guys think about uh government by sortition? This is a classical idea uh by lot where people are randomly chosen by lottery to fill specific uh functions in government uh and they they act on those what 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 do you guys That's think about interesting that? it's something
1: yeah,
0: go ahead. It's I think something. it
1: would be really. You would need to make sure that certain things are met, probably. Like, you would have to meet some form of requirement before being put into the lottery. But mm-hmm. I think that somebody going in there that feels like they are totally unprepared is more likely to ask for help. Now, no, yeah. you know. That's really
0: interesting (laughs) because that's actually Sam Harris had said in one of his podcasts that this is right before Trump got elected. He said, I would take a random American citizen over Trump precisely for the reason you just stated, Justin, which is that if most people, if they were chosen, they would recognize that they don't have all the information and that they should therefore depend on the experts. The most dangerous thing is to have someone who doesn't know what they're doing. But they're too confident and egotistical to ask for help from the experts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That kind yeah. of leads to. But, the but I agree. I agree of, that that with what you were saying about how we need to have we should have some minimum like qualified pool of candidates that would maybe be randomly chosen.
1: Yeah, that kind I mean, of leads to my second part of the best case scenario too. Similar to what you were saying, maybe instead of an algorithm running you know, all of the, making all the decisions, maybe, maybe it's more of a meritocracy similar to what uh, Ray Dalio talks about, where certain people make, so let's say you're making a decision about climate. The people that are, let's say, more educated in law or something else will have less of a say over what happens because they don't know actually the details of what's going on. So, so people have a changing influence depending on the topic that's being discussed and i think that if we had kind of mo- something like a council of elders rather than a single head in charge <laughs> that that was actually making decisions about the country and they could you know get people that were actually experts in the various topics we would yeah. have a lot better discussion and probably a lot better outcomes than what we do now. Uh, we would just need some sort of super contrarian to make things really different than they are now. But I think a lot we would have a lot of growing pains if we had a scenario like that.
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, what it, it sounds like you're kind of describing like a technocracy, where you have people that are experts in their fields, the ones making the decisions. The only problem well not the only problem there are a few problems <laughs> there, but but and you know i don't it's uh it's at some point those competing interests are going to conflict so you might have someone who's an expert in uh energy extraction and you might have someone who's an expert in uh in i don't know uh, climate science or whatever mm-hmm. and and they're going to come to conclusions that say this is what's best for our particular Whatever, whatever I'm representing. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. and then you do need to have an overarching person to say, okay, right. okay, this need is more than the other ones. In fact, that's yeah. that's pretty much what lobbyists do. Lobbyists represent their particular interest. Um, you know, like if you work for the Environmental Defense Fund, like you're going to be representing environmental interests. Yeah, and, I mean
0: that's kind of uh, how your cabinet should function. Also, is that. I mean, but I love the Ray Dalio example because, you know, Ray Dalio, basically, he gives each of his employees a baseball card. And on that card are different stats of like how good someone is at problem solving versus, you know, interpersonal skills, just dealing with people versus like whatever all the different stats are. And based on any decision it's not like they just ask one person. So if you're making a climate decision, they don't just ask the energy extraction expert or just the climate scientist. They get a group that's an energy extraction expert, a climate scientist. Maybe they also get, you know, uh, a farmer or like whatever it Mm -hmm. is. Yeah. And then they basically come to a decision. But I agree with you, Brett, about you need someone at the top or at least some system of voting that gets to whatever the, the final decision is, you know, sort of the head of head of state or maybe algorithm of state.
2: Mm. (laughs) Yeah. I, uh, it's, I think it's tempting. I mean, it would be nice to be able to kind of take all of that decision responsibility and give it to an algorithm or a computer. But I, I ultimately think that it's best to leave people In charge of that because there are some things that we just can't account for yet. There's there's human cost to things Um, Humans need to be governed by other humans, you know, Mm. because we understand ourselves best uh, At least better than anything else that's so far so far so far certainly Um, It's tough. We kind of already in theory have this system where we have someone vetting the ideas you know like a lobbyist for the energy companies or whatever says this is great and it protects this many jobs and it increases GDP by this. And then the yeah. environment, hey, this isn't great. And then it ultimately comes down to the politician who should be a an, a, a fair arbiter uh, yeah. to come up with policy. But that's short circuited because sometimes the lobbyists have access to uh, a large constituency and they can say, don't vote for this guy. He's not looking out for our interests or... They can take a bunch of ad money, or they can take a bunch of uh, donations and put them into a, a nonprofit that buys, you know, airtime to blast the politician. I mean,
0: yeah. Well, I think I think that is one of the biggest issues and biggest hurdles right now is that there are there's there's a benefit and a detriment to anything you do. So, yeah. like, let's take climate science for instance. The single greatest proposal or like the proposal that would have the most impact on climate science and actually creating a better environment across the world is if there were some sort of carbon tax, right? Because Mm -hmm. right now it's a negative externality. There's no economic accounting for the fact that companies that pollute a lot are actually negatively affecting everyone else. So, If we implemented a tax, then it would be economically aligned. So that all sounds great. It sounds like, yes, let's do it. Let's vote in the carbon tax and we'll be much better off. Our kids will be better off. Our grandkids, our great grandkids. It'll be much better for humanity as a whole. But then on the other side, you say, well, you know what happens if you increase carbon tax? It's going to increase the price of oil. And you know who that's going to affect the most? It's going to affect people in economic hardship. It's going to affect the low. And that is true. I mean, it'll it will be a detriment to people who really they they can't afford to spend an extra 2 bucks a gallon on gas or it's going to really hurt them maybe it will even push them into homelessness and that is a legitimate argument but it's and it's really difficult to grapple with whether you whether you put more emphasis on people right now versus many more people farther down the line of
2: history a solution for both of those is just don't let certain interests uh, hold people hostage uh, by saying like, oh, they aren't going to be able to afford gas or afford... It's like, well, fine. If, if if you're saying they won't be able to afford gas so that they can't go to their job to earn money so that they can buy food and shelter and all of the necessaries for life, then just provide those necessaries for life. Yeah, I mean, if we have the resources to do that, why haven't we done that? And yes. it's because our status quo is not conducive to coming to that conclusion. Like there's a lot of channeling and maze and rationales. Right. that this, lead yeah,
0: to, I think you hit the well, nail on the head. I mean, this overthinking of issues is one of the most prevalent problems right now.
2: Yep. And it's all tied with our values are so, especially, you know, this is a broad stroke, but we can say Western, maybe Puritan or Protestant values of, your virtue being related to your work ethic and your productive right. when well, it's like, Hold on, th- I I can do so much more with my life that is not necessarily production that results in a profit that is still beneficial. I can be, I can be a caretaker. I can help people with anything. I can volunteer. Exactly. I can, you, know, uh, so- you can
0: raise kids. You can you can smile and be friendly to people that you meet on the street. You can be a general, generally pleasant, helpful member of society. And you don't have to be creating thousands of widgets per hour to be
2: valued. Which, in terms of a best case scenario for AI, so I'll take it back to best case, yeah. is, is a best case scenario would be, I think, where we recognize as a society, maybe as a global society, that... We've been given an amazing gift that we no longer. I mean, so much of being a human is defined by your laboring. Whether it's you're a hunter-gatherer and you're picking up nuts and legumes and seeds and fruits and whatever, or whether you're in an office park and you're, you know, Peter from Office Space and you just hate your life (laughs) and you're just, you know, cranking away at hours. Like we, we have this amazing gift that we are soon hopefully to be freed from that so what do we do with that how do we determine um what makes a good person because we're stuck in this paradigm right now where a good person is a person that produces and is a part of the community and cares for you know others but but what happens if they don't need to produce what happens if we don't need to produce what does that mean for these systems it's it's a lot to handle and i think the best case scenario is that we get to a point where we don't define people by their productive capacity and it frees people up to engage in so much more, I don't know, human endeavors.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I le- agree with that
0: one. I agree as well. So let's move on to the most likely future scenario and then we'll we'll wrap it up. So given that the best case future scenario is a world where we humans can focus on just what we intuitively know to be good about being a human and where all people are considered, not just some people in decision-making and given that the worst case scenario is the opposite where a very small group of people hold all the power and Mm. that most people's wants and wishes and most earthlings wants and wishes, including animals and everything else are not taken into account and it's more of a children of men type of world. What do you guys think? is the most likely future scenario, let's say, 50 years from now. Is it going to be some combination? I mean, it does seem to me like it's hard to go half UBI. It's kind of like either we don't do it and we're in Children of Men or we do do it and it's pretty good, maybe not perfect. But I'm curious what you guys think.
1: So we're kind of. I feel like right now we almost are in the middle of like non-UBI and UBI. Um, well, okay, maybe I take that back a little bit. But we have we have some social structures in place that will help people, but it's very poorly done. Um, now, if we were able to get around that, I think I think we would have a lot better uh, scenario. So I think what the likely scenario is: things are going to get bad. I think that we're going to have, we're basically going to continue this trend of what we've seen with the political divisiveness and separation between the left and the right. But at some point, I think it'll actually break. I don't think we've gotten to a breaking point yet, and I think it's probably even likely that we see the same White House in 2020, which is kind of depressing. But there's there's enough. Rage still in the culture I think that it can carry through to 2024 but at some point it's gonna break and I think there will be somebody in place at least put in place at some point in the future that will make the changes that need to be made. I don't think we'll get to a children of men scenario mm-hmm. um, I think I think maybe this is the optimist in me, but we should get to a scenario that's close to the best case scenario, because I think we will continue to see progress. And I have general optimism about like human productivity and like, uh, technology and the, just the values that we have. I think we just need to wait for certain generations to kind of disappear, um, from the, the main political realm. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, that's, It's kind of, I think it's just going to get worse. And then we'll probably see, hopefully, see something close to what we described as the best case.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the most likely case is we're probably going to have more significant climate change than we've seen. But we're probably going to implement some means of reducing the impact for Western countries. Um, we're probably going to be much more insular. I think we've reached a point, unfortunately, you know, in the 90s or early 2000s, where we really were a fully global community. And I think we still will be to an extent. But I think a lot of people in traditionally impoverished areas, the global south, um, I think life will get much worse. And now that's the bad part. Um, I think the good part is that there will be still people and still countries and institutions that will be able to withstand a lot of the uh, upheaval that's going to happen in the next 50 years. Um, my hope is that they can withstand it enough so that they can make life better for people that are in third world countries or impoverished areas that are going to face, you know, the harshest, um, the harshest elements of the, of the impact of, uh, of automation, certainly of, um, of, of, Climate change, most definitely. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. You see this with a lot of a lot of people. Uh, you know, neoliberal economists or or policymakers usually they say they they talk about the impacts of climate change on people in the third world, or they, they talk about the interests of people in the third world and of refugees almost in economic terms exclusively. Like we need to accept refugees because our population is dwindling and we have people that are getting older and we need people to keep, we need population growth to keep coming in. Um, we need it to increase more and more. But that ignores the entirely human element, which is that there are billions of people that are likely to, well, to die um, or to live just significantly worse lives. Um, that's probably the most likely Um The silver lining in that is that, you know, even while quality of life might go down for most people, I think that there's going to be a core nucleus of hopefully of people that will try to reverse some of the worst effects of climate change so that we can uh, actually create a a world where people are uh, people have their basic needs met.
0: Yeah, I feel that I I pretty much agree with both of you guys. I think we're going to go a bit deeper down the current rabbit hole of divisiveness and identity politics and fear and vitriol and vilification of the other and that that's going to take us so far and that it might even you know i i could see it going even into part of the joblessness crisis from automation Mm -hmm. where it's like there's all this joblessness taking place but we're still blaming it on something else but at a certain point i believe that people are going to need to face reality And at a certain point, you're not going to be able to spin what's really going on. And at that point, I think people are going to rise up and they're going to demand that certain changes be made. And whether that's just expanding the current welfare state, where it still can be gamified in ways that we don't want, or whether Mm. it's a much cleaner system with UBI, maybe, you know, tax reform so that people can actually understand what's going on with taxes you know, whichever way it goes, I think we will end up building a better social safety net and, uh, you know, taking into account the lives of, of a greater proportion of people than than we are right now. And yeah, I think there's going to be a lot of challenges, especially in other parts of the world. Like, think about if you're a country that doesn't have an Apple, an Amazon, a Google, a Facebook, a Tencent, an Alibaba, if you're not one, of, you know, if you don't have a company or a number of companies that are going to benefit from AI and automation, you might end up being at the mercy of being on the wrong side of technology. Mm. And that could be terrible. And unless we take up a more global mindset of caring about everyone, not just people within your national boundaries, then we're going to see some serious suffering. And it might be, some children of men scenario, but in certain parts of the world, so in pockets like you know, like we talked a little bit about Syria, we might see more countries turn into Syria, but it still might be okay for countries like America, China, the UK, some other uh, other ones. Mm. And yeah, I mean there are some very real challenges ahead, but I I don't think it's not something that we can overcome. Let's hope. Yeah, let's hope. Alright, cool. Well, thank you guys so much for this discussion, and thank you to everyone for listening. This has been the Future of Politics. Today is November 6th, election day. Go vote. I don't you're care what you vote for, today, but so long you as you're civically engaged, like Brett has thing. brought up as being so important,
1: we
2: talk do about do it. what has happened, what is currently happening, right. right. and Take what care. will inevitably happen.
1: The past, the present, and the future.